Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. This week, global financial markets have been in absolute turmoil after three American banks collapse. And there are fears this could spark another global financial crisis. The other big failure that happened over the weekend on Sunday, we had Signature Bank fail. It just so happened that Silicon Valley Bank was our second largest bank failure in the US. Yeah, so in this episode, we'll explain what happened in America and how it affects us here in Australia. That is our briefing. First, today's headlines with Jan Fran. It is Thursday, the 16th of March. Starting with some comments from the former Prime Minister, Paul Keating. And uh, if you know anything about Paul Keating, he doesn't hold back when he makes comments sometimes. Mm. And this time he slammed the AUKUS submarine deal. For $360 billion, we're going to get eight submarines. Right? It must be the worst deal in all history. The worst deal in all history. That's a very, very big claim there. Um, he also said that China has no interest in war with us. China does not threaten Australia, has not threatened Australia, does not intend to threaten Australia. Yeah, so that was Keating um, giving an address at the National Press Club there. Uh, Defence Minister Richard Miles has hit back, basically saying that the world has changed since Paul Keating was the Prime Minister of Australia, that we don't live in the world of the 1990s, and also that... Our national interest demands that we do this. Yeah, it was pretty spicy stuff from Keating. He slammed Penny Wong, Richard Miles, Anthony Albanese. He said it was the biggest mistake by Labor since conscription in World War One, And i got to say, Jan, I made some comments yesterday going out on a bit of a limb that this was a waste of money and it was unnecessarily provoking China. And Keating has sort of gone way harder. I don't agree with Keating about the level of threat from China. I think there is a level of threat, but I, I think he's right. This is a ridiculous amount of money for some submarines. And with the AUKUS deal, I also wonder whether we've just been talked into you know, under the name of this big new alliance, which we already had because they're our two closest allies anyway, spending Mm. loads of money on their submarines. Well, he did say that he was watching the images and the videos of the Australian Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, and the British PM and the US President together signing the deal. And he said, only one of them is paying you know, insinuating that we've we've been had somewhat. The other interesting thing that he said uh, during his address, or rather when he was being asked questions by a bunch of journos, was just how much disdain he had for some of the journos asking the questions. There was one um, journalist in particular from the Sydney Morning Herald who asked a question and he basically said to him, mate, I think you should hang your head in shame. Um, and then, you know, really talked talk trash about his newspaper. Um, and there was another journal who said, you know, what makes you think China is not a military threat to Australia? And he basically just said, um, because I've got a brain and I can think, which, you know, he did not come to play by the sounds of it yesterday. Yeah, so he was slamming um, the reporters from the Sydney Morning Herald. They've just done this big series saying that we could be at war with China within as little as three years. And a lot of people complained about it, thought that the reporting was was really alarmist. Alarmist, um, but- yeah. I mean, Keating has always had an issue with the AUKUS deal, really from the beginning. I, th- I think I remember he described it as throwing a handful of toothpicks at the mountain. So, yeah, it's got a way with, with words. words. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And the NRL has new concussion guidelines, so anyone who gets concussed will be out for a mandatory 11 days. We want to design a system to ensure that players are always reporting particularly mild concussions 
and the 11-day period allows for that process to take place. So that's the CEO of the NRL, Andrew Abdo, there. So the change will be implemented straight away. Yes, and it is uh, the most significant change to the NRL's concussion policy in almost a decade. Now, we should say here that clubs can apply for an exemption to that rule, but if they want the exemption, the player needs to be assessed by an independent neurological expert. Yeah, so that's someone who's not on the staff of the club whose yep. main incentive is to win games. Yes, exactly. They need they need somebody who is independent of that process entirely. Now, this brings the NRL in line with the AFL, um, who brought in a 12-day rule. This was two years ago. Not before enough people were damaged enough, though, to bring a massive class action, which we reported on in the show yesterday. Yeah, so the class action um, is seeking up to $1 billion, 60 players involved. So there's going to be more to come in the fallout from what's happened over the last few decades in these football codes. But this is a strong move by the NRL. So, you know, 11 days means you definitely won't be playing next week. Uh, Then you have to be assessed to see if you can play the week after, which is a good start. And two in five Australians have experienced physical or sexual violence since they turned 15. This is according to new data that has been released from the Bureau of Statistics. Men are slightly more likely than women to experience violence. And the survey asked 12,000 Australians in 2021 and at the beginning of 2022 about their experiences of violence. That's where they've gotten that um, figure from. Yeah, so this is the ABS Personal Safety Survey. This only comes out every five or six years, so it's a it's a very useful set of data. It actually found that the rate of sexual harassment declined for women, down from 17% in 2016 to 13% in 21-22. It also found that sexual harassment had gone down for men from 9% to 4.5%. So interesting findings there. That could be good news, but the survey was done in 21-22 when we were, mm. you know, a lot of us were, were sort of locked up in the pandemic. A lot of us weren't, a lot of us were. Yeah, I wonder how much the pandemic is affecting a lot of the sort of statistical um, data that we collect about people because they, they were very particular years, those years, 2020, 2021, mm. 2022. Um, in this particular survey, there were questions asked about economic abuse for the first time, which I thought was interesting. And 16% of Australian women said that they had experienced economic abuse. So that happens when a person's access to economic resources is controlled by their partner, basically. And again, you do have to wonder how much COVID plays into it because people are not going out as much. Maybe they're at home for more often. Maybe they're being surveilled a little bit more. It's, it's just interesting. And so they've checked our sewerage for drugs and this is what they found. Um, Australia's overall use of illegal drugs dropped by about 10%. So this is the National Wastewater Drug Monitoring Program. Um, still a lot of drugs being consumed though. 14 tonnes of methamphetamine, cocaine, MDMA, heroin worth about $10 billion. And it gets interesting when you look at the... <laughs> Let's call it the taste of different cities. So Sydney, guess what? Recorded the most cocaine. Oh. <laughs> Melbourne, yeah. Why am not I not surprised about that? Nope. Melbourne have had the highest MDMA use. There you go. Adelaide, this is the this is the stat no one wants attributed to their city. Highest amount of ice use per capita. And Hobart came in with the highest oxycodone use. 
It's funny, there seems to be some key differences between city drug consumption versus regional drug consumption. So, mm. for example, cocaine, ketamine, heroin, higher in capital cities, alcohol, nicotine, ice, MDMA, higher in regional areas. Yeah, different strokes for different folks, I guess, Jan. Um, we'll catch you tomorrow on the podcast. Uh, in just a moment, Antoinette Latouf is about to join me as we look at the banking collapse in America and what it means for the world economy and for our economy. All right, now to the fears of a banking crisis in America, and those fears were sparked on Friday when Silicon Valley Bank collapsed. It was America's 16th biggest bank. Two other banks collapsed as well, and a bunch of other banks have had their share prices demolished. It's been a wild week, Antoinette. Yep, it's certainly making a lot of people nervous, and and the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank uh, was the biggest bank failure since the fall of the Lehman Brothers in 2008, um, which is you may remember, what helped spark the global financial crisis. So it certainly feels like the ghosts of the GFC are gathering around us. So I guess the the question is, could the Silicon Valley bank collapse spark another financial crisis? And of course, will that affect us here? William Chittenden is an Associate Professor of Finance and Economics at the Texas State University. He's very good at boiling this stuff down into terms we can all understand. William, thank you so much for joining us. In simple terms, what happened to Silicon Valley Bank? The very short story is that more customers wanted their cash uh, than Silicon Valley Bank had available. The slightly longer story is that Silicon Valley Bank got into what we call a liquidity crunch that they had bought a couple of years ago some very safe U.S. Treasury securities. Shouldn't have been any problem. But more recently, the tech industry, who they very much catered to, that was kind of their bread and butter, where startups uh, were having troubles. And so they needed to start drawing down on that cash that they had on deposit with SVB. To meet those cash needs, SVB was forced to sell those securities But unfortunately, since interest rates have gone up so much since they were purchased, so in the U.S. we've seen rates go up about 4.5% over the last year, those securities were worth less than what they'd paid for them. So on Wednesday, SBB sold $21 billion in securities to meet the cash needs of their customers and had to incur a $1.8 billion loss on that sale. Two other banks have collapsed in the last week and and share prices in some other US banks plunged. The First Republic Bank dropped 60% in one day. What's next? Are more banks going to collapse? I don't believe so. And part of the problem for Silicon Valley Bank was that they were focused very much on a single sector, in this case, the tech sector. And when that single sector starts to experience problems, then the bank is going to experience problems. And in this case, it was more on the liquidity side. They couldn't meet the cash needs of their customers as compared to their customers not being able to pay them back, to pay back on their loans. With the other big failure that happened over the weekend on Sunday, we had Signature Bank fail. It just so happened that Silicon Valley Bank was our second largest bank failure in the U.S. and Signature was our third largest, Mm -hmm. although it was about half the size of Silicon Valley Bank. But it failed for a different reason. It catered very much to the crypto industry, making loans to those involved in crypto. Those loans having issues being paid back really led to the failure of Signature Bank. 
although both are being treated the same in terms of the FDIC designating them to be a systemic risk and therefore allowing all of the deposits, even those above $250,000 to be fully insured, the idea was to ease the fears of those depositors so that there's not a rush on other banks. Mm -hmm. You'd mentioned First Republic. They're also one that has a a very high concentration of customers that have very, very large deposits at the bank. And so customers were starting to get a little nervous. However, First Republic was able to secure funding to meet the cash needs that they had. And although they did see a huge decrease in their stock price on uh, Friday and on Monday, I wish I would have had the foresight to have bought a whole bunch of it (laughs) Monday night because today it was already up about 50% from where it ended yesterday. It's starting to recover. So talking about meeting those cash needs, everyone is avoiding that B word and that's bailout. But is the US government's response to SVB's collapse essentially a bailout? It is in a sense, but the difference between, say, the bailouts and, and that bad word bailout from the financial crisis to today is that During the financial crisis, the equity holders, the stockholders of the bank, many of them made out like bandits once the financial crisis was over. In this case, the SVB shareholders and uh, signature shareholders have nothing. They've been wiped out. They've lost their investment. Now, they took a risk. They invested in a company. It didn't do well. For all practical purposes, you could say it went bankrupt and, you know, investors lose their money. The bailout, though, that's different here is for the depositors, Mm. the customer, and they're the ones that are going to be made whole. Uh, From a practical perspective, again, $250,000, at least for for me, I'll assume for for you all, it's uh, a large sum of money. But for a company, $10 million isn't that much. If you've got a million dollars in payroll a month, that only gets you a few, not even through the entire year. So the, the 250000 in many ways is artificially low, at least for modern business. So these deposits were guaranteed by the government's deposit insurance scheme. Is it working better than it did in the global financial crisis? And does that show uh, the American banking system has learned some lessons from the GFC? Well, hopefully they've learned the lessons from the GFC, but unfortunately, as time passes, folks begin to forget some of those lessons. And I think, for example, with Silicon Valley Bank, the lesson that they forgot is that interest rates don't stay near zero forever. Mm. For folks like myself that have gray hair that were around well before the financial crisis in the 80s and 90s, we remember that interest rates were significantly higher. And I educate bankers on a regular basis, and I've been telling them for a long time, you know, this is not the norm. But if you entered the business, let's say the banking business in 2010, outside of the last year, all you've known are very, very low, very stable interest rates. Again, go back 18 months ago. If somebody said, do you think interest rates are going to go up by four and a half percent in a 12 month period? They would have thought you were crazy. But the idea for banks is they're supposed to be prepared for those types of things. And in this case, uh, SVB didn't do a good job with that, what we call interest rate management. So overall, I think the industry has done well. They're not repeating the mistakes of the financial crisis. But with over 4,000 banks in the United States, unfortunately, every once in a while, you're going to have one or two that that don't do well. So our banking system here in Australia is a lot more concentrated. You have thousands of banks in America. We have a smaller number of big banks and um, with much stricter liquidity measures. 
you know, that is that the banks have to keep a lot more cash on hand and also report on that cash reserve level more regularly. Do you think that will be enough to protect us or could this sort of problem in the US um, affect us here? I think the financial crisis uh, kind of illustrates that the Australian banking system and, and uh, others that are like it, the Canadian banking system, where you, you have a few very, very large players, has led to a pretty safe banking system. So for all practical purposes, Canada didn't see any uh, bank failures during the great financial crisis. And although we love our uh, independence and our independent banks in the US, and most of them, those smaller community banks are very, very strong, uh, there can be something to be said in you know the strength in numbers. In the US, it's those handful of very, very large, not with billions, but rather trillions of dollars of assets that are considered too big to fail. The implication that the government is going to do whatever they can to keep them standing, that's kind of what they did during the financial crisis with a, a broader number. So, William, it's interesting to hear you say you don't think um, there'll be a contagion effect where the collapse of these three banks will spread through the US banking sector. But one of the lasting impacts may be on interest rates, which is a theme you've touched on many times already. You know, it was a big factor in SVB losing money on their bonds and not being able to cover their deposit holders when they wanted their money back. But the other dynamic that's played out this week is bond markets have been in free fall. Short-term bonds, the yields or the returns on those bonds have gone down more in one week than they have since the 1987 crash, which is changing, I guess, the forecast for interest rates, both in the bond markets and central banks. So what do you see happening on interest rates? And could that be the lasting effect of what we've seen this week? Well, I think it's going to be a short-term effect, my belief, in, in, in terms of the drop in rates. And the reason they, those rates have dropped is because there's been an increase in demand for those treasury securities. So when people get nervous, they want to have that what we call that flight to safety. They invest in the safer securities by bidding up those prices. That causes the return or the yield on those to go down. I guess the overarching question is, and I don't want to sound like too much of an alarmist, but are we on the brink of another big financial crash? I don't believe so. The biggest difference, if you want to just say, with between SVB and the financial crisis is that you had a, a big failure like Lehman Brothers. Mm. And Lehman Brothers had financial dealings with lots and lots of other financial institutions around the world. And so when they failed, that really did create a domino effect because before they failed, if you were a, a financial institution and had an investment with Lehman, you thought it was 100% safe. And then all of a sudden, those investments might have been worth zero. And that spread throughout the uh, world economy very, very quickly. Here, we're looking at two banks that have a relatively focused customer base mm -hmm. and not a lot of dealings with other financial institutions. So although their customers and their depositors are going to be impacted by their failure, it's not really going to impact other financial institutions from a practical perspective. That was William Chittenden, Associate Professor of Finance and Economics at Texas State University. So I reckon, Tom, like he did a pretty good job of like pouring a cold bucket of water mm. over, over all the panic. But naturally, like the market is still nervous. Um, and if it does turn out to be a storm in a teacup and it's over in a week, then we're probably going to see inflationary measures continue on their current trajectory. But of course, if it does get worse, we'll feel it here in Australia because... Every time the US has gone into recession, we've had a downturn as well. Yeah, 
but nowhere near as bad, particularly with the GFC. Um, yeah, it was interesting to hear him explain why he doesn't think this is the start of the, a big crisis, that the banks that have gone down were particularly concentrated in the tech industry in terms of their client base. The common factor, though, between these banks that have fallen over and their customers, the tech companies, is they're all struggling with higher interest rates, which is a factor that could undo lots of businesses across many different sectors. So that's what we'll be on the lookout for. Mm. All right, tomorrow in the briefing, we're getting deep on the AUKUS submarine deal. Um, You heard earlier in this episode, Paul Keating say it was the worst deal in all history. Jan Fran has a very interesting interview where we raise some of those challenges um, with one of Australia's most prominent security think tanks. Listener.